0: Following things have in common? What do the following things have in common? Terrorist attacks, spiders, war, nuclear war, heights, criminal violence, loneliness the future failure and death what these things have in common is that they are all things that people fear indeed according to a 2005 poll these are the top 10 fears 10 things which people In the United Kingdom, fear most. I wonder, what makes you afraid? While all of us have different fears, all of us nonetheless grapple with fear throughout our lives. None of us are immune to that quickening of the pulse rate, to that sweating of the palms, you know, to the physical quivering, to the knot in the stomach. It may be that different things make us afraid, but we all face fear as a fact of life. And yet on this Easter day, on this appropriate day, we meet the one, the only one, who can help us confront our fears. In the story we read moments ago, we learned of how Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus, laid his hand on John and said to John, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It's a wonderful application of the message of Easter. That we need not be fearful of all the things that our society so fears. Everything from the disapproval of man to the daunting prospect of death itself. For we know Jesus. We, if we are Christians, know the one who is the living one. Who is the first and the last. And on that basis of our knowledge of him, our fears are quelled, our fears are calmed. And so this evening, I would like to consider with you some reasons why we need not be afraid on this Easter Sunday evening. Even Christians sometimes are crippled with fear. But there are two things John learns about Jesus that helps calm his fears. Number one, he learns that the risen Jesus rules over all. That will quell your fears as you reopen your Bible, if you've closed it, to Revelation 1. To understand that the risen Christ rules over all as one who is the first and the last. See, many people today are afraid because they think the world, this world, is out of control. Or they have the idea that the world is in the control of the wrong people. But the truth is, Jesus Christ, who 2,000 years ago was raised from the dead, is reigning today over all things in heaven and on earth. Now, I realize that this is not what the skeptic believes. The skeptic says, such is not evident to me. The skeptic says, it is not obvious to me that Jesus today is in control. Maybe not. But the Bible teaches it is so. Not least in the book of Revelation. Revelation, which, as its title suggests, is a prophecy revealing truths which people might otherwise not understand. And what is the core of this revelation? Well, verse 1 of Revelation 1 explains, this book is a revelation of Jesus Christ, It's a revelation of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus. It is only incidentally a revelation of what is to come in history. It is centrally, this book, a revelation of who Jesus is. And how Jesus will reign for all eternity. The glorious answer to that is that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is utterly triumphant. That's what Revelation tells us. He is exalted over all. He has supremacy over all things and over everything. As chapter by chapter, we see Christ conquering all of his foes, one by one. It is, this book, a majestic revelation Of the majesty of the risen Christ. Indeed, it is in this respect somewhat in contrast to the Gospels. In the Gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we see Jesus revealed in his humility. In Revelation, we see Jesus revealed primarily in his authority. In the Gospels, Jesus is mainly presented as the suffering servant. But in Revelation, he is mainly presented as the supreme sovereign. In the Gospels, the main image is a cross. Everything points to the cross. Jesus dies on the cross. It is a symbol of humility and shame and suffering and death. However, in Revelation... The main image is not a cross. The image is that of a throne, a a heavenly throne. The the stage is often a throne room. Revelation symbolizes the exaltation, the power, the authority and glory of Jesus Christ. And as we come to these verses, in Revelation chapter 1, we see the true to theme. It is the authority of Christ which is stressed. As we see the beginning of verse 17, as Christ uh, lays his hand on John, the right hand that, that holds the churches in his hand, he lays that right hand on John, and he says, don't be afraid. And the very next thing he adds is a note of authority. I am the first And the last. These are words of tremendous authority. Ponder them for just a moment with me. Understand not only what Jesus says, I am the first and the last, but what he means by what he says, what he's implying by that. Now, what he says is simple enough I am the first and the last. We might say it this way I am the beginning. And the end. The beginning and the end. It's not insignificant. That the Bible opens with these words in Genesis. In the beginning God. In the beginning God. Before God created. God existed. God pre-exists his creation. God pre-exists everything which exists besides him. And in addition to this. Jesus, as Revelation 1.8 clearly tells us, is God. He is the Alpha and Omega, the Lord God Almighty. And so when you bring these two things together, that God pre-exists all that exists, and the fact that Jesus is God, then that clearly shows us that Jesus existed as God before creation. He is therefore the first. He is the first born over all creation, as it says in Colossians. But not only is he the first, he is also the last. Now, I don't think we can take this reference so strictly chronologically as when we say the first. We know for one thing that the church of Christ will exist for all eternity with Christ. In this sense, Jesus is not the last chronologically. He will not outlast the church, so to speak. But I think Jesus is the last in another sense. Jesus is the purpose. Jesus is the goal of all of history. Jesus is not only the one from whom everything comes. He is the one to whom everything moves. We were made for the glory of Jesus Christ. That is why you exist this evening. That is why your heart beats tonight. That's why you have breath in your lungs this evening. You exist for the glory of Jesus. Now, that's what Jesus says. He's the first before creation, and he's the last. He's the purpose for creation. But what does he mean by that? Why does he say that? What idea is he trying to convey? Well, surely it is nothing less than his supremacy. His supremacy. That's what he's getting at. In Colossians chapter 1, there's a striking parallel there to this passage. As Paul describes Christ as the firstborn, the firstborn over creation. As Paul says that all things were created by him, that's the first, and for him, that's the last. Now, why does Paul say that over in Colossians? Why does Paul establish these facts? Well, in Colossians 1, Paul is arguing for the absolute supremacy of Christ over all heavenly and all earthly beings. There were some who doubted the rank and the supremacy of Christ. And so Paul proclaimed these truths to show Jesus' authority. And I believe it's the same principle here. When Jesus says, I am the first and the last, he's not simply giving us a history lesson. It's a way of saying to us, he is, I am supreme. I am sovereign in history. Caesar isn't sovereign. So don't fear men. You see, in Revelation, the context of it is, it was written to churches who were under persecution and who were under the oppression of Caesar and the Roman Empire. The empire was putting the squeeze on the Christian church. John was on the island of Patmos, and it may well have been that he was there because of his testimony for Christ, for Jesus. John knew, certainly Christians, who were facing the growing phenomenon of emperor worship, where, as a Christian, you were forced to make a public decision between Christ or Caesar. If you worshipped Caesar, you lived. If you worshipped Christ, you died. And, you know, in that kind of situation, you really need to know who really is sovereign. You really need to know who is the first and who is the last. And it is not Caesar. It is Christ. Many did refuse to bow the knee to Caesar because they recognized that Jesus was and is the first and the last. He is, as verse 5 of this chapter says, the ruler of the kings of the earth. As verse 17 says, the first and, the last, and you know, the application of this is very obvious, but I'll tease it out for you. That whatever the cost is to us, we should be willing to testify to Jesus in the knowledge that he is supreme. I was quite moved yesterday when I read on into the second chapter of Revelation. Because I didn't realize that this phrase, the first and the last, is used again. It is used in reference to one of the churches. Maybe you know which church it is. It's at the end, uh, in the middle of chapter 2, the church in Smyrna. And here we find, here, here is a church that is facing persecution, uh, that is facing poverty, that is facing imprisonment, and which is facing potential death. We see that in verse 10, 9 and 10 of chapter 2. And to this church, to this church that's about to come under the squeeze of the Roman Empire and Caesar, to them, he says to them, verse 8, these are the words of him who is the first and the last. Remember that when you're standing, when you're standing in the Colosseum. Remember that in that life or death situation, remember that Jesus is Lord of all. Be faithful. He says uh, in verse 10, even to the point of death, be faithful as a witness. Don't fear men. I am the first and the last. Be faithful. This is a, a challenge, I think, to our fear in relation to evangelism particularly. You know, sometimes... I just see such a contradiction in my life. Am I the only one that feels this? We come into church on a Sunday. We proclaim in loud voices and happy faces sometimes that Jesus Christ is alive, that he died for our sins, that our eternal security rests in him, and then we go out from this place, and we're so reticent and shy about talking about Jesus. And we don't need to fear anything like death for testifying to Christ. And yet we're fearful. I sometimes think we're a little bit like the, uh, the people of Israel. You know, before they were about to enter the promised land? And they sent in 12 spies to check out the lie of the land. 12 of them came back. 10 of them gave the report that the people in the land were too big and too fearful. And only two of them said, we can go up. Our God's big enough. We can take the land. I sometimes think churches are a bit like that and in that kind of proportion when it comes to evangelism. You know, there's always the ten against the two. Most of us really do feel that the, the challenge of evangelism and the fields of evangelism is just too much of a fearful place. We have people as being far too big and far too intimidating and our God is far too small. The other guys came back and they said the challenge is big but our God is even bigger. There's a great book, Uh, it's not specifically about evangelism fears, uh, but it is about fear, and I recommend it to you if you're looking to study more on this subject. It is called, When People Are Big and God Is Small. That is our fundamental problem most of the time. And so I've got a new strategy, you know, for when I'm in that quivering moment before sharing about Christ with that non-Christian neighbor and my new strategy is this when I feel intimidated by this just human person I'm going to remind myself of this vision of the Lord Jesus and I'm going to hear as it were the words of Christ when he says to me I am the first and the last don't you fear about this ordinary individual I'm the first and the last you obey me I've given you a commission you just preach the word don't be afraid Now, I want us to notice a second statement that also serves to banish fear. Not only is Jesus the first and the last, and he has authority, but he also says, I am the living one. Here's the truth. The risen Jesus lives evermore. He not only rules over all, but he lives forevermore. His summary statement of this begins... In verse 18, when he says, I am the living one. Everything that comes after that in verse 18 is really an expansion of this essential reality. I am the living one. I think the NIV is right to capitalize this. It's virtually a title. I am the living one. I am quintessentially life itself, says Jesus. I am life eternal. And what prospects this gives... In a time when people are searching for eternal life... And they are searching for eternal life today... Not just religious people... Not just folks that come to church... But the people out there are searching for eternal life... Just recently, Simon Cowell... Did you see? The pop mogul... uh, Said that he's going to freeze his body... After he's died... Well, someone's going to do it for him, presumably... Let me just rephrase that. (laughs) At the cost of £120,000, he hopes that medical science will be the saviour and that which can resurrect his body. You may laugh at that. But, you know, if most people in our society had the kind of money Simon Cowell does, they probably would stash aside £120,000 just in the hope. Human beings, we long, don't we, for immortality. It's that great thing that just seems to lie beyond the reach of us as human beings. And yet we long for it. The sad thing is that most of people are looking in the wrong place. I just feel sorry that Mr. Cowell is wasting his money. And I sincerely hope that someone instead tells him about Jesus. Because Jesus is the very definition of life and immortality. Jesus famously described himself as being the way, the truth, and the life. But what is so remarkable about this living one is that the one who lived for all eternity, did you notice in verse 18, he says this staggering thing, I was dead. He says that in verse 18. Here is the risen Christ, In his heavenly glory, recalling what happened on Good Friday. And he says, from the Friday to the Sunday, I was dead. He was crucified, of course. The Gospels tell us that. They nailed him to a cross, and physically, bodily, he died. I was dead. What an incomprehensible and astounding thought. Charles Wesley tried, just tried to capture this. You know, we can't capture it. But he says in the hymn, And Can It Be? Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore this strange design? I certainly cannot. We can only understand why Jesus died. He died for our sins. He died that we might be free from slavery to sin and that we might be forgiven for our sins. But we do not understand the complexities of how that occurred. How the living one died. But we believe it. And yet this we know. He did not remain dead. He goes on to say, But behold, I am alive forever and ever. The nature of his existence is found in the word alive. He's alive tonight. And the duration of his existence is found in the words forever and ever. See, Christians don't simply believe that Jesus was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. Christians also believe that Jesus today lives to reign forever, that he will never die again. There were some in Jesus' ministry whom he raised from the dead. Lazarus was a great example, only to then die once more. But Jesus lives never to die again. He lives to reign forever and ever. In the tomb so cold he laid him, death its victim claimed powers of hell, they could not hold him. Back to life he came. Christ is risen. Death has been conquered. Christ is risen, and he shall reign for how long? Forever. That's what we sang. But it even gets better. For we can reign with him. We can be with him for all eternity. We see that in the final phrase, at least implied in verse 18. For Jesus adds, I hold the keys of death and hell, or death and Hades. I hold the keys. I'm holding some keys here tonight. But these are just uh, keys to my car and keys to the church office. Jesus holds the keys to death. And to Hades. It's an amazing thing. Keys symbolize authority in Scripture. Keys symbolize the fact that someone has authority over something else. And do you know what Jesus has authority over? He has authority over death. He has authority over Hades also, the place of the dead. What an antidote to fear! He is not only Lord over the living, but he is Lord over death. Again, this was a particular issue for these first century believers. Death may seem, and it does seem sometimes, at arm's length to us. It seems like it's never coming in our direction. But these Christians face death daily. They woke up every morning with the possible prospect that they may have been martyred or killed for their testimony. Therefore, they needed to know that the Lord Jesus was the living one. And that not only had he been raised, but that he held the keys of death itself. By Caesar's command, Christians may have been put to death. But once dead, they would enter a realm and a domain over which Caesar had no jurisdiction. In which Christ has full and final authority. That's one of the wonderful things about knowing Jesus. You can face death with a sense of calm, with a sense of peace, and even with a sense of expectation. Not that death in itself is pleasant, but we know the one who holds the keys of death, and we know the one who holds our life in his hand for eternity. I imagine that death is something all of us think about, from time to time. Maybe it's more acute among very young and, and much, you know, very older people. I think when you're middle-aged, you're just so busy, you don't think about it as much. Uh, we have uh, a, a very young uh, son. He's only five years old, and he's been peppering us with questions. Even this morning coming in the car as we were uh, chatting about the resurrection and death and, of Jesus and all these things, we got all these questions about death. When are we going to die? When is when's mommy and daddy going to die? When am I going to die? What happens when we die? Is it going to be good when we die? Is it going to be great to be with Jesus? Is there anywhere else we can go when we die? It's a six-year-old asking these questions. And we often put these things to the back of our mind, but it's the great reality, isn't it? I wonder if you are someone who can look death in the face. I wonder if it's a great fear for you. Earlier, I mentioned all sorts of fears. You know, the funny thing about most fears is that underlying those superficial fears is the fear of death. Death is the ground zero of all our fears. That's why, you know, people are scared of heights, because they're scared that they might fall and die. That's why people are scared of spiders, because they have a ludicrous idea that there are poisonous spiders in the UK. There's not. Or uh, claustrophobia. Maybe they'll die in a small space. Terrorism. You see, death underlies all of those fears. And yet the sting is removed when we realize that Jesus died, that he was raised, and that not only he lives evermore, but he has authority over death. Death is not some great unknown thing that is out of control. Jesus Christ, whom we love and we trust and we worship, holds the keys tonight. We sing that hymn, don't we? With great gusto, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. I wonder if you have that hope. I wonder if you have that confidence in the face of death itself. No other message, no other religion, no other faith in all of the world has such a confident message in the face of death as does the Christian gospel. Because we have a living Savior who has conquered death and who holds death's keys. If you don't know Jesus this evening, the one who holds the keys, then you need to come to him and put your faith in him. He is the only one in whom there is eternal security. And not only is human history divided along the line of those who trust in Jesus and those who reject Jesus, but your personal history is also decided by the choice that you make about the Lord Jesus Christ the choice that you make this evening the choice which you may have for the last time this evening to put your faith in Christ or to reject him I began by talking about fears here's two statements to jot down and to meditate on this week to quell your fears i am the first and the last i am the living one a little final thought the words of Jesus banishes many fears. But maybe meeting Jesus doesn't eliminate every fear. The reason I say that is, did you notice how the passage opens with this vision of Jesus in his glory? And did you notice the fact that it initially produced fear in John? John? Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 1, when I saw him, when he saw this vision glorious, I fell at his feet as though dead. That's fear. Jesus immediately moved to calm John's fear, and he said these wonderfully comforting words. But the fact remains nonetheless that in the presence and in the sight of the majestic risen Lord Jesus, there was a sense of fear that John felt. And it may be for all eternity, and I do believe this is so, there will be a healthy reverence that we will always have for Christ in his glory and in his splendor. The one who removes all other fears, or fear of death, or fear of men, and every other thing, is still the one that ultimately we rightly respect. And in one sense, we fear, we love him, we fear him. I'm reminded of that dialogue in C.S. Lewis. He captures it so beautifully in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. He's talking about Aslan, the, the great lion. What an interesting picture for Christ. It was a good choice. Aslan represents Christ, the lion. And one part of the dialogue runs like this. Aslan, a man, said beaver sternly, certainly not. "'I tell you, he is the king of the wood "'and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. "'Don't you know who is the king of beasts? "'Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion.' "'Ooh,' said Susan. "'I thought he was a man. "'Is he quite safe? "'I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion.' "'That you will, dearie, and make no mistake,' "'said Mrs. Beaver. "'If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan "'without their knees knocking.' They're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he's not safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I'm longing to see him, said Peter. Even if I do feel frightened when it comes to that point. Let's pray. Father, thank you for a glimpse tonight of the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his words of comfort. Lord, it's not weak for us to face up to fears. So easy just to bury our fears. But Lord, we are fearful about many things in life. And yet, Lord, we thank you for the the big things. Issues like death and its reality. We And have the peace of Christ reigning in our lives, reigning in our hearts, giving us security for the future. Father, I pray this evening that by your Holy Spirit, you will work in each person here that we might come to put our eternal trust in the eternal Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.